Matt, are you familiar with Vin Mariani? Uh, that sounds like a, uh, a prego sauce. Who is that? <laughs> a French mixture of Bordeaux wine and cocaine that claimed to cut pain, improve energy, and promote wakefulness that was popular at this time. Apparently, Ulysses S. Grant was a fan, as were many other people, and it's the basis for Coca-Cola, which was basically an attempt to recreate that without the alcohol after Georgia uh, passed a prohibition in the late uh, 19th century. But with plenty of cocaine still. Yes, cocaine's still there. Uh, I've got the podcaster's version of that, which is a, uh, a tall boy of light beer and a Red Bull with me, so I am ready to <laughs> pod. Let's do it. About the Gilded Age. We're in the Gilded Age, We love Matt. it, don't one we, the, folks? One of the top five ages of American history. And we know we love to keep having them. We love a good Gilded Age. The, the, the age so nice, we had it twice. We're back <laughs> in it, folks. And welcome to our president's podcast, uh, which this week I am calling Fail to the Chief. I like that. Fail to the Chief. Let's go with that and end this whole contest once and for all. This is episode seven. Despite all my rage, I'm still in the Gilded Age. To start today, we have to go back to July of 1877, the first year of his fraudulency, Rutherford B. Hayes' term. It was the fourth year of the massive depression of 1873, and the B&O Railroad had just cut its employees' wages for the third time in a year. On July 14th, workers in Martinsburg, West Virginia, went on strike, stopping work and preventing train movement until the pay cuts were reversed. The strike quickly moved to Maryland. In Baltimore, National Guard troops were dispatched to head to the western part of the state to control the strikes. On their way to the rail depot, the 6th Regiment of the Maryland National Guard was continually blocked by strikers and regular sympathetic citizens alike until, finding themselves surrounded and outnumbered, the 6th opened fire on the crowd, killing 10. In Pittsburgh, the National Guard bayoneted and fired upon strikers, killing 20. The strikers retaliated by setting fires and destroying dozens of buildings and hundreds of railroad cars. The National Guard then killed yet more workers. In Scranton, a militia under the command of the general manager of an iron and coal works opened fire on a group of strikers and bystanders, killing anywhere from 20 to 50 people. Throughout the industrial north, railroads were blocked, rolling stock and infrastructure was destroyed, and workers were slaughtered by state guards and corporate militias alike. After more than a month of unrest, Rutherford Hayes deployed federal troops and marines to suppress the strikers. This was the first time federal troops were used to break strikes against private companies. And though no federal troops had directly killed any citizens, more than 100 strikers had been killed. Hayes said, quote, The strikers had been put down by force, but now for the real remedy. Can't something be done by education of strikers, by judicious control of capitalists, by wise general policy to end or diminish the evil? The railroad strikers, as a rule, are good men, sober, intelligent, and industrious. Yes, Rutherford, can't anything be done? And so we return to this great railroad strike, still one of the largest and most violent labor upheavals in American history, to set the stage for this new era. As we transition from the Age of Reconstruction into the Gilded Age, the tragic surrender and the conflict over protecting the hard-won freedom of blacks in the South gave way to a new conflict. 
the unrestrained corporate dominance over government and society ground against the rising forces of labor, and in the West, populism. Matt, we're now fast-forwarding back to 1884, so let's look at the array of forces at the beginning of Grover Cleveland's first term. So the period between the end of the Civil War and at this point is the period is the time during which the United States government, as we understand it, as an actual functioning uh, uh, power that could preside re- uh, effective control over an entire continent, comes into being. Uh, before the Civil War, the, the the state was still very very minimal because it was kind of tied around the, the political millstone of Southern uh, slave political economy. That was broken by the Civil War, and the fight to break it is what opened the dam. Not only did it remove the Southern blocks from legislation, but the necessities of war created a need to expand the size of government incredibly rapidly in order to defend itself. The system was at terminal threat, and all of its fake restraints that it had put on itself, that the Constitution was supposed to be uh, an inviolable protection against, they all went away. Why? Because they had to, to, to maintain the the uh, union to keep the union together and that meant that uh for one thing as we've said the the gold standard and the species fixation that had dominated american uh monetary policy before the war is with a blink removed and uh and fiat currency greenbacks flood the northern economy and buy all of the material needed to outfit a million an eventual million man army that puts down the southern rebellion Mm -hmm. and this capital formation creates this huge new pool of money arrayed around the the people who had the money before the war for the most part a few upstarts (laughs) but those people who had been able to uh get in on the ground floor sell things to the army uh and get those greenbacks in return uh and also get government bonds which were backed theoretically by gold and the fight to make sure that those uh that those securities uh, were paid back in gold-backed currency and not in the greenbacks that they'd been bought with is the thing that sets the whole term for this because it strangles Reconstruction. It strangles any kind of genuine uh, equitable economic development. Uh, It concentrates money at the very top of the spectrum where it is used to create this corporate monstrosity, used to buy up smaller competitors in these emerging uh, and necessary markets and industries like in railroads like mining like lumber the things that make the country into uh, a viable entity competing in a rapidly industrializing world uh and because the state is being built by this money it's literally being purchased as it's being created it's being captured as it's coming into being and all of these new mechanisms of state power are being completely dominated by the forces who have the money to just bribe literally the political class <laughs> into uh, acceding to their will. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, at the poor end, the the, the electoral end of the political system, which uh, these political this political class needs if it's going to sustain itself, you also have people who need uh, who need some sort of reason to invest in your thing, to vote for your party, to participate. Uh, in the spoil system and, and the and the patronage networks that makes the parties possible, uh, you have graft, you have corruption, you have spoils. And uh, that is how uh, the money that's at the bottom end uh, of this uh, system is sort of siphoned off 
to maintain some loyal percentage of lower class people. And then everybody else is over time bought off with land. And that process during this period becomes so intensified that the percentage of people who can realistically imagine themselves pursuing yeoman freedom evaporates. And it creates for the first time in America a class of self-aware workers, people who did not think of laboring on the way, in the wage economy as a step in life towards self-sufficiency. It is a permanent condition now for must, many, many people, not just Catholic urban immigrants, but native-born Americans throughout the country. And so you have the, uh, the array of forces at this point is this new uh, uh, Yankee monolith that is now bestriding a whole continent is giving it life with uh, infrastructure, uh, but is completely controlled by the actual the, the, the forces of capital. And then we have arrayed against them this newly aware, coming into itself, working class uh, in, in the cities, but as we're going to talk about, as things get worse and worse, in the West too. The South divided by the reaffirmation of white supremacy as like, the golden spike that that destroys that the spit the, the spike in the heart of uh any kind of working class or proletarian solidarity in the south just killed mm-hmm. by white supremacy and the failure of reconstruction and that means that the political system is completely stuck we have this period of pronounced and consistent depression starting in 1873 and then uh and going out through the rest of that decade the longest uh sustained economic uh uh, a decline in this country's history uh, with a, an inf- a deflationary currency because this is during the same time they're reestablishing the gold standard, bringing in currency out of circulation instead of putting money into circulation. And it is these contradictions that are starting to be manifested politically. But as we're going to see, it's not really going to be at the top of the two parties as they existed because they are demand. They are determined their uh, positions are condemned by the uh, politics of the post-war North and South. Those loyalties are determining your political participation. It is in the West, peopled by a diaspora within America who are not hegemonically uh, allied to one narrative of the war that, that determines their political allegiance. That's where the pressure is going to really build up, and that's where the first real electoral challenge to this now uh, dominant second party system and the uh, corporate duopoly at the top of the party uh, is going to come from the West. So that's obviously a lot of background here. But, uh, you know, one thing that that reminded me of was one of the quotes I read while putting this together was from a Pennsylvania Republican boss, uh, Matthew Quay, uh, who said of this era, Politics is, quote, the art of taking money from the few and votes from the many under the pretext of protecting the one from the other. And that basically sums up the uh, elite attitudes at the top. Indeed. Like these parties at this point, they are not accountable to themselves as parties. They have not been. they, They were created by ideology, but the ideology went away over time and was replaced with self interest and self interest now is fully oriented around who am I taking money from? Who am I getting votes from? 
my participation in the uh, the spoils economy is around. Hey, I need a lot of workers to 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 put me in office, <laughs> and I need money for my campaigns, and I need to extend my party with my power within the party by influencing others in the party, which is requiring me to have reach, and that means votes I can command, and that means money at my fingertips that I can use for the party's benefit, and that comes from below. That sucks. That comes from the recyc- the recycling of the spoils money. That is put out into these cities to buy off these these this sliver of, of of ward healers and like local tavern owners, mostly the petty bourgeois within these the closest thing anyway that these immigrant communities have, and then trickling down to the jobs for garbage men and stuff in the neighborhoods. All of those people and people who have become federal uh, marshals, anything through the system, postal workers, they're kicking up a percentage of their salaries to the party to build the party and build its ability to exercise power but at the top at the at the level of policy it is all being determined by direct bribery from the new corporate uh power centers that have now they are in the process of crushing the old class interests that dominated america before the civil war which were which was northern merchant capital and southern agrarian capital those forms of capital continue to exist but the people who uh control it are increasingly now part of this new uh corporate uh power center so we're moving from an era of relative stability at the presidential level to one in which these contests for power and constituencies will shake things up the democrats will win the white house for the first time in nearly 30 years Populist candidates seeking to rewire the whole system will be making a serious play for the throne and also benjamin harrison is there hey hey I'm Benjamin Harrison. We'll get to him. And though reluctantly, Rutherford Hayes has fired the first shot, as it were, in the federal government's conflict with labor. But it would not be the last. This is The Gilded Age. Stephen Grover Cleveland was born on March 18th, 1873 in Caldwell, New Jersey. He went with Grover. He went with Grover over Steven. I mean, I guess there are a lot of Stevens, Amazing. but not that many That's Grovers. It's like a branding thing. Like Topher Grace. <laughs> I mean, it's memorable. He's, I think he's got one of the more memorable names of the presidents. That's true. If, like, between that and the, uh, and the uh, non-consecutive terms, that's really he's got more than most of those presidents from that era have in terms of people yeah. remembering them. His father was a Presbyterian minister, and his mother was the daughter of a bookseller. The family moved to Clinton, New York in 1850. They struggled financially, and he spent his youth alternating between schooling and working to help support the family. After his father died in 1853, which apparently he learned from a, a guy hawking newspapers on the street, like, the death of Cleveland Sr., and he was just right there, and he was like, oh, damn, no. He worked to support his family uh, for a while before moving west to Buffalo. There, his uncle, Lewis Allen, a prominent local lawyer, gave him a clerical job, and Grover read law with him. Grover was admitted to the New York Bar in 1859, and by 1863, he was appointed Assistant District Attorney of Erie County. Have you noticed how many lawyers we've got in this thing, by the way? Is that, is that weird? It is the age of lawyers here. Lawyers sure love being president. <laughs> uh, when Congress passed the Conscription Act of 1863, rather than serve, Cleveland paid $150 to a Polish man named George Beninsky to serve in his stead. Uh, George would survive the war. 
Otherwise, I would say that would be a, a pretty big uh, black mark in Cleveland's book, but uh, still paying a Polish man to serve for you. Uh, uh, n- not as heroic as some of these handsome general guys that we've been talking about. Yeah, uh, that it really does show how the war is losing its valence as a political uh, cudgel because this guy got elected having, uh, after all these generals, some of whom got wounded in battle, uh, you got a guy who's like, hey, hey dude, uh, you want to f- take this for me? The, I, I got shit to do, dude yeah but i guess he at least he wasn't like an active copperhead we can give him that that's like the, <laughs> the thing you could give a democrat during the war you're not clement valangingham <laughs> cleveland made a name for himself as a buffalo lawyer including doing pro bono work defending some of the participants of the fenian raids and i know this is a long episode but do you want to ch- chat about the fenian raids for a second just as a historical anom- oh, anomaly so there were a bunch of obviously there were a bunch of irish immigrants who fought in the union army during the civil war Many of them hated the shit out of England and wanted to get it out of Ireland that it had colonized for 500 years. <laughs> and this was, of course, remember, shortly after the potato famine, many of these people had fled Ireland because of the potato famine, which has been just an act of imperial murder by the colonial authorities. They were pissed and had every right to be. Every time an English actor would go uh, to perform uh, in New York on stage, it would cause a riot. Irish people would just start hitting folks with bricks as soon as the guy started singing. Uh, And so some of these veterans who fought and bled on the battlefield to free slaves they didn't really care about, frankly, because who are they to them, uh, decided they were going to take that training they'd learned and invade Canada with the idea (laughs) that if they could take Canada from Britain, they could then trade it for Ireland and a colony to be named later. Uh, it was there were a couple of them they were they were all farcical uh, although the one of the raids did result in the uh, the Fenians as they called themselves uh, driving a a Canadian militia company off the field so they actually did win a battle before they inevitably all had to surrender and many and a number of them had to be were charged in American courts for uh, for uh, trying to invade, invade foreign countries without permission. <laughs> Where you're not, you get, you're not allowed to do that. It's a monopoly of force. Uh, I just wanted to bring it up because uh, it is a very funny little, uh, uh, you know, Eddie in American history. And Cleveland is involved. He's pr- defending these guys uh, pro bono, uh, which you know, I guess that's how you uh, know he was a Democrat. Uh, Irish solidarity. Cleveland aligned with the Democrats in Buffalo. In 1870, he was elected sheriff of Buffalo, a position he held without much notice, though he did personally hang two men. Which for which he gets the re- name the Hangman of Buffalo, which I think that's a little overblown. He yep. was just ex- executing the office. It's not like he was going out of his way to kill guys. He did it twice, though. He hanged two guys. He's a literal hangman. They gave him the option, like, look, dude, you're the sheriff. You can either do this or hire another guy to do it. And he was like, eh, it would be on se- it would be unseemly for me to chicken out. So he did it. Oh yeah, I'm gonna hire somebody else to get shot for me, but uh, I'm gonna do the murder myself. Wow. This sounds wow. like just an asshole, frankly. Oh, uh, well, we're going to we're going to get to the canceling of Grover Cleveland later. <laughs> oh, baby, are we ever? Uh, he then returned to his law practice where he became a prosperous, unremarkable Buffalo attorney. Just like Millard Fillmore. Yeah. Until 1881 when he just rides this kind of insane rocket ship to the presidency. So in 1881, sensing weakness from the particularly corrupt Republican slate for local elector- elections, Buffalo Dams approached Cleveland to run for mayor. He agrees and was elected, taking office in January of 1882. His time as mayor of Buffalo was spent with tackling such grand issues as picking a cheaper street cleaning contractor to avoid graft and petitioning the state to install sewers at a lower price than obtained locally 
to avoid graft. So, you know, cleaning up government, literally. Yeah. And this is the process that's going to be happening over the late 19th, early 20th century as the progressive era replaces the Gilded Age. Well, what is happening there is a process by which this, the, uh, the bureaucratic state itself and, and like the, the culture around it becomes sort of self-aware, becomes aware of its own uh, interests separate from uh, the, the, just the self-interest of the office and then the people paying them. And it begins to assert dominance over the two wings of its uh, original influence. And that starts by, remo- by the, uh, the good government movement, the reform movement that, uh, that, swept, Grover- that uh, swept Garfield to presidency and got him shot. Uh, civil service reform and all of that. That is about professionalizing uh, government to remove that popular influence from below. And what we're going to see, spoiler alert, in the progressive era is the wings being clipped on individual capital firms to do whatever they want in order to facilitate a more effective uh, bourgeois dictatorship effectively. To, 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 uh, it, this is the period when the state actually becomes a power-wielding central committee of the bourgeois instead of just a, uh, an expediter of the individual desires of every powerful interest within capitalism which is what characterized the gilded age so 1881 to 1882 cleveland goes from lawyer to mayor state democrats facing a deadlock in their nomination for the governor of 1882 see cleveland's anti-corruption work in buffalo as impressive and use him to break the tie the state republicans still being split between stalwarts and half-breeds uh, are unable to field a competitive candidate and grover becomes governor of new york in 1883 There, he continued his anti-corruption push, alienating the old Tammany machine, but making inwards to the new reform Republicans, embodied by a young hotshot named Theodore Roosevelt. And then, one year later, national Democrats were looking for an honorable anti-corruption figure, and split between a number of regional candidates, Cleveland gets the Democratic nomination for president on the third ballot. So from just kind of a respectable Buffalonian to presidential nominee in three years, Uh, not a bad ride for Grover Cleveland, but it kind of shows how the disintegration of the spoil system leaves this vacuum that Cleveland kind of gets just propelled up through. Uh, and I know you've already like uh, explained that in your last aside, but maybe you can expand on the, uh, the, the election of 1884. So as this, as this system is coming to being, as this new, government is coming into being and as people become to feel that their uh, ability to exercise liberty outside of politics is re- is reducing because the frontier is closing in and, and the promise of uh, of of self-sufficiency is re- receding partially because there are more things to uh, there are more luxuries in life which means there are more things that you come to need or imagine you need there are more things that you become, uh, as, as, as infrastructure intensifies, more things you come reliant on, which means self-sufficiency is less possible. And that creates the sense of precarity. And that middle-class precarity is the engine of politics. So while the system is coming into being, the middle class are, of course, resentful of all those railroad uh, handouts and, the, 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 and maybe about the tariff, uh, the way that it advantages uh, powerful firms. Uh, but their real resentment rolls downhill towards the, 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 the masses who they fear falling into and whose existence is this constant uh, uh, terror to them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even as the economy 
grains and struggles through a failed recovery uh, to the panic of 1873 and as deflationary currency strangles uh, advancement, you're seeing during this period a genuine decline in standard of living uh, and general health in America. Uh, and this is all stuff people notice. Uh, and so since both parties are completely controlled at the top by these this new corporate order uh, and therefore can't do anything about the currency, or won't do anything about actually allowing government to actively help people, uh, then all it can do is find someone else to blame. And, and especially among northern middle class people who determined these elections during this period – uh, it's it's the grubby urban hordes with their hands out who are the the danger. And since there is no real welfare state at this time, the closest thing mm-hmm. is the spoil system. And so guys like Cleveland uh, became embodiments of this politics of middle class propriety that attempted to paper over all the all the monstrosity of the system uh, uh, on this idea that if we could make government purely removed from uh, politics, like the execution of the state's capacities as non-political, uh, that we will somehow have a, a system that will work as God attended, you know? And so guys like Cleveland become the avatars of that. He ran against uh, someone in the Republicans who he could draw a really strong contrast with on this question because James G. Blaine, the man from Spain, Maine. From Spain, James G. Blaine, the man from Maine, the man from the plains of Spain. Uh, James G. Blaine, the man from Maine, uh, the longtime senator there, had been one of the chief one of the chief names uh, mentioned in the Credit Mobilière scandal of the Grant years, and it never really recovered from that. Even though he had uh, come around on civil service and stuff by this time, uh, and was trying to re- look like a reformer, uh, people remembered him as as a crook, uh, and then. He couldn't even lean into being a crook to try to get those uh, northern <laughs> urban votes uh, because of the scandal involving uh, one Samuel D. Burchard, uh, who at a speech that was attended by Blaine claimed that the Democratic Party stood for rum, Romanism, and rebellion. That's my favorite uh, Pogues album. And it became a huge scandal that made it impossible for Blaine to make up uh, any urban support. And so with the help of a bunch of dissident Republicans, the uh, inheritors of the liberal Republican standard, the people who had deserted Grant for Greeley because of his uh, his his corruption and uh, and uh, reliance on spoils they now desert the republicans for the democrats and Clo- cleveland and they get called mugwumps the mugwumps the 19th century absolute high point for american nicknames for factions we don't have anything like that anymore yeah maga that sucks <laughs> we gotta get some mugwumps back and uh there is also this is one of the uh of the rare 19th the rare victorian era elections that features tabloid scandal uh in the form of grover cleveland's uh acknowledged illegitimate child with maria halpin uh which led to republicans chanting mama where's my pa at rallies uh and then we have the election cleveland narrowly wins of course, with the South, but then he picks up the crucial swing state, his home state of New York, and then Indiana, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And not only does he bring the Democratic Party back into power uh, for the first time since the antebellum period, but he breaks the string of presidential beards 
that had begun with Lincoln. <laughs> he does have a big stash, though. It had been all beardos. And you know what's interesting is that's the only time there's ever been a bearded president. That bearded bracket between Lincoln and uh, Harrison. Yes. Who he defeats, uh, who he, when he comes. Oh, no. Shit. I forgot. Harris. God damn it. The fucking non-consecutive turn always throws me. <laughs> but it's. Yes. Every, it's everyone from Lincoln to. Uh, oh, fuck. Never mind. I was wrong about this. No, wait a minute. I forgot. What do you call mutton shops that connect to the mustache? I don't know if there's a name for that. Is that no? Is that a beard? Because that's what Chester A. Arthur had. Yeah, I think that counts. Is that a mustache or a beard? It's kind of an inverse goatee. It's it's the all butt goatee. Never mind. I, that's entire. I was completely wrong about that. I, th- I think I, I think it, your sartorial I think your sartorial point is generally correct. There, Harrison is the end of the age of beards. Cleveland ends the beards. His we've never had a beard since then, and it was him and Taft with the mustaches, and then known mustaches since then. All clean shaven. We got to bring some presidential facial hair back. We got to do it. Of course, uh, when Cleveland wins uh, by, as you said, very narrowly, just point five seven percent of the popular vote, the Democratic response to "Mama, where's my pa?" is, of course, gone to the White House. Ha ha ha. Yep. And so, Grover Cleveland, first Democrat president uh, since the 1850s, enters office. In office, Cleveland continued to pursue his good government policies, as well as standard Democrat policies of small government, low tariffs, and the gold standard. So, like, as part of his good government and small government reforms, he was able to shrink the number of federal employees by simply refusing to restaff departments that had swelled with political appointees, uh, that sort of thing. That kind of sets the standard for Cleveland governing by saying no. His attempt to lower the tariff was based on the belief that government revenue should not be foisted onto the people, especially when the government was running a surplus. And finally, on silver, Cleveland opposed the hot-button issue of bimetallism, the idea that money should be backed by both gold and silver, which would expand the money supply and facilitate payments for the generally less affluent South and West. This was like the issue in economic policy in the 1880s, but we'll get to bimetallism more in a second. Matt, can you help me parse the Cleveland ideology for a bit? So there's one thing that is going on here which is corporate domination of this new form of government the 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 people within it totally prostrate before this new this new spigot of fucking money that's just redetermining their entire relationships but these people also believe things They, they they believe they're doing things for for greater reasons than that and that is ideology and Cleveland, I think, genuinely believed in the neo Jack. He he believed in a, a neo Jacksonian idea that that freedom came from freedom. Freedom in America came from the freedom to compete. I guess now in the marketplace, uh, less over land, uh, but but to compete on an even playing field without government interference on either side. Uh, and so. That means a alienated money supply determined by not anything we say, but what the gods say about how much uh, gold there is uh, and low tariffs uh, to allow for free intercourse of trade uh, and that that is what guaranteed liberty uh, and and that and as that was, of course, always predicated on slavery or at the very least on the yeoman fantasy of, of total self-sufficiency, which is mm-hmm. already 
being uh, precluded. Uh, the insufficiency of this vision had already been exposed after the panic of 1837 when Van, Van Buren was left holding the bag and no way to address that crisis. But in this new world of concentrated monopoly capital uh, rule enforced by the courts, uh, it was even more absurd. In an era of frontier enclosure and economic stagnation, Jacksonian freedom is the freedom to starve. But uh, <laughs> Cleveland, of course... Everyone around him is telling him everything he reads, everyone he talks to is telling him that not only is that correct, it's, it's natural law and irrefutable. And so he pursues this presidency with that in mind and with everyone else arrayed along this, around the same fantasies. So a lot of the more salient applications of Clevelandism would occur in Cleveland's more dramatic second term, uh, which oddly happens four years from now, because Cleveland is about to get lightly owned in the election of 1888. But before he gets owned, let's get him canceled, because Cleveland is the only president to get married in the White House, which he did on June 2nd, 1886. He married the daughter of one of his friends, the 21-year-old Francis Folsom. Cleveland was 49 at the time, which age gap much, and also had been the executor of her father's estate and supervised her upbringing since her father's death in 1875 when she was just 11 years old. Uh, so that's a yikes fam. We can, we can call him groomer Cleveland. 100%. Not cool, man. Yes. Not cool at all. No, it's, but it is one of those like 19th century things where I guess everybody around him was like, yeah, this is fine. This is normal. It's, it's how it's done. Uh, but honestly, it seems like they had fun. Uh, upon leaving the White House in 1889, uh, Francis, now Cleveland, uh, told the staff, quote, take care of all the furniture and ornaments in the house, for I want to find everything just as it is when we come back again. Uh, and when asked when that would be, she responded, four years from today, which, shot called, they did. But first, Benjamin Harrison. For 1888, the Republicans once again returned to their reliable well, a handsome general, though this time they wisely shifted one state over from Ohio to Indiana for former Senator and Civil War General Benjamin Harrison, plus the grandson of William Henry Harrison. So a little vindication for the Harrison family in the White House here. This election honestly plays out a lot like 1884. The major issue was the tariff, uh, which, you know, we've been going around like what these economic policies did. But uh, from the ground, why were people so invested in tariff arguments here? Uh, I know we've been talking about the tariff since like Madison in the War of 1812, but perhaps you can elucidate it more in the industrial uh, context. So your stance on tariffs in America was determined by your proximity to uh industrial uh the industrial the burgeoning industrial economy and that not only of course meant that the northern uh industrial interests and the banks that they were uh funded by were in favor of it and therefore the the politicians who they they chose were in favor of it but also just the urban the entire array of uh jobs that emanated from it uh people who worked in those industries people who worked around those industries people who worked in the cultural industries of the new booming uh eastern cities all saw the benefit imagine the benefit of tariff to protect an independent american industrial base which it must be said was crucial mm -hmm. to any state's ability to uh compete in a multi-state system if you mm -hmm. if you uh 
build an industrial an independent industrial base you could compete with the big boys of europe uh that is the main distinction between the united states and latin america which uh after uh world war ii all attempts to create industrial uh, uh bases in latin america were annihilated from without uh, and uh, the volker shock helped put a stake in their heart for once and for all but there's a cost to this to the people who aren't directly involved in the creation of this industrial economy. And that is people who just got to buy stuff, uh, <laughs> people who work the land anywhere in the country uh, and people who are uh, work maybe in the, in the cities, but outside of the direct benefit of, of the industrial economy. Uh, and uh, there's a good quote from uh, the Indianapolis Sentinel in 1888 that said that a vote for Republicans was a vote for cheap whiskey and tobacco, dear clothing and food and shelter, the indefinite perpetuation of war taxes in time of peace for the benefit not of the public treasury, but of monopoly. And that is basically true. But the one thing that the Republicans had had in their back pockets is that the uh, money that came in from these tariffs would be redistributed in the form of war pensions to union veterans. Mm -hmm. And that provided uh, some sort of soothing of the uh, annoyance about the costs of the tariff. It was a redistribution, essentially, uh, to to buy off a constituency. And that uh, is what prevented the tariff from being a guaranteed vote killer uh, for a long time. But uh, by this point, the felt sense of of exploitation and the felt consciousness that this was really going to benefit the monopolists those in power was beginning to get people pretty fucking pissed at the tariff and harrison (laughs) went all in on the tariff he went he went uh run go long i'm gonna hit you at the post (laughs) on the tariff so harrison pursued an active campaign particularly in his home state uh, and was able to eke back indiana and cleveland's home state of new york uh, he won that state by just one percentage point, uh, and he brought those both both back to the Republican fold. Uh, thus, Cleveland was consigned to the rarefied field of candidates who won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, and Harrison was elected. Though it must be noted just how rigged this was. Uh, in this election, southern states had so successfully disenfranchised blacks that South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana, whose 26 total electoral votes were determined by their total population, uh, both black and white, cast only 311,674 ballots. Ohio, on the other hand, cast 839,000 ballots for its 23 electors. So a southern white vote was still worth twice as much as the vote of a northerner. Ain't never been a democracy. Now, I'm going to super speed round Harrison's background because he's another one of these cookie cutter handsome generals guys. Born near Cincinnati, Ohio, and shout out, uh, since he's actually up there with northern Virginia and central New York as a presidential nexus. Harrison had a modest upbringing, despite being William Henry Harrison's grandkid. He was around seven years old at the time of his granddaddy's inauguration. Harrison studied at UMiami in Oxford, Ohio, read law in Cincinnati, then set up shop in Indianapolis. After Lincoln's 1862 call for troops, Harrison raised a regiment in Indiana and got commissioned colonel. He served with distinction and obtained the rank of general. You know how this goes at this point. Guess the rest. Returns to Indiana, practices more law, ran for governor a few times and lost, ran for senator in 1880 and won, and that brings us basically up to 1888. Again, this is the same kind of copy-paste background uh, of these dudes going back to Grant. 
The one thing that stands out for him is during the Great Railroad Strike of 77, he raised an independent citizen militia to show support for the bosses and management, which, dude, lame. So Ben Harrison and the Republicans are back in the saddle, and they get busy. Enacting so many of their agenda items with attendance spending, this Congress becomes known as the Billion Dollar Congress. They pass a lavish pension program for Civil War veterans, as you were just alluding to. The McKinley Tariff, which jacks up the tariff to an average of 50%. And they pass the Sherman Silver Purchase Act and Sherman Antitrust Act, two stops to a growing force in U.S. politics. And now... It is time to talk about populism. Woo! Okay, here's where the the fucking dam bursts. We have this uh, political stalemate at the national level between the Democrats and Republicans who presiding over this economic crisis period with this lockstep resistance to uh, inflating the money supply, reducing the power of uh, of the trusts, the monopolies. Uh, or doing anything really to intervene with the rapid depletion of the American dream. Now, uh, the enduring legacy of the Civil War and its and its cultural imprint means that in the west, in the North and South, uh, even as this pain is being felt, it's still only being able to be expressed through this this uh, broken stalemate between these two parties that are organized around symbols around right supremacy and the lost cause in the South and around uh, the heroic sacrifice of the Civil War, traitorous Southern, rum robinism and rebellion, as was said. Those things determine political loyalties. But in the West, a relative melting pot within the country uh, of people from other parts of it, uh, new political formations are emerging among the last people to try to make a go of genuine self-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency that the Republicans had promised in 1860 with their vote yourself a farm promise. Now, in the East, you're seeing a rise of labor militancy. You see things like the Great Railroad Strike. You see the emergence of the Knights of Labor, an early attempt to create a uh, a national, uh, if not a union, a national political uh, organization for workers. In the West... There isn't as much direct confrontation with the state, uh, but there is also uh, a lot of anger and resentment at this new system because these farmers who are trying to make a go of it in the West are having to contend not only with weather, uh, uh, but with the fact that they are not free. They are burdened by two significant types of debt. One is to the local railroads, which are at this point, controlled by a series of geographically determined monopolies that dictate their own rates for uh, transport, transporting crops, which the farmers need to pay for if they're going to be able to sell their produce profitably. Uh, mm-hmm. And some carry, uh, carriers give preferential rates to uh, large transporters and make it up by charging more for small ones. Uh, and they feel the, the farmers feel that pinch. They also, many of them work on a crop lean system. That means that they are borrowing for the materials that they need to, to make a crop and then having to pay it back at the end of the year, maybe. And if the harvest isn't good enough, uh, owing money instead of being able to make money, uh, mean leaving them in debt to the merchants who had supplied them credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, this all led to a, a political alienation and a organization 
that happened in the West outside of the two-party system because those the legacy, those parties did not really have the institutional uh, influence that they had uh, farther east. Uh, it started with uh, with mutual aid in the form of the Farmers Alliance, which was uh, founded in Texas in the late 70s as a cooperative that helped farmers avoid being ruined by these forces by piling up uh, their collective their collective produce and and helping one another cooperating as it were uh, uh and these farmers alliance became the basis for a political organization that began running candidates throughout the west trying to make inroads uh into us uh, particularly the south uh and also uh to make connections to the labor movement uh there were there were attempts to try to actually fuse this growing organization with the uh knights of labor and uh that didn't go Mm -hmm. through uh but there was a recognition that they were part of a common struggle against monopoly uh and that led to a coming together uh, in 1888 in st louis a national convention uh that had farm activists from across the west uh knights of labor uh anti-monopolist greenback parties all of the people who had been cast off from the uh the machinery of the two parties coming together to try to come to uh, a political platform. Its demands included the nationalization of the railroads uh, and, the, and the democratic fixing of rail, rail costs. It called for a system of tr- sub-treasury warehouses for the mass uh, storage of uh, agricultural produce mm-hmm. to prevent the fluctuations of the market from destroying uh, small farmers. Uh, and they called for what they said was a second declaration of independence. They, and they wanted, uh, of course, a, a huge loosening of the monetary uh, system in the form of, if not bimetallism, just fiat currency. Uh, and also the abolition or at least direct, dir- the direct election of senators. Uh, and this all led to a convention in uh, 1892 in which the populist or people's as it was known party uh was formed and it was formed around the uh the omaha platform and it involved all of those uh those demands single terms for presidents and vice presidents Mm -hmm. uh the secret ballot nationalizing telegram and telephones and the postal service also the and the introduction of a graduated income tax and of course free coinage of silver uh, and that party uh, in 1892 succeeded in getting 11 House seats, electing several governors, electing state legislatures, and it ran a presidential candidate, a former greenbacker, James Weaver. He won four states in the West uh, with 22 electoral votes, uh, and they were able to elect senators from state legislatures. And that was the pressure that finally burst from the west and started to upend the uh eastern consensus and that is why you get things like silver coinage and the anti the sherman antitrust act to begin to accommodate this new political uh force so the billion dollar congress does these things passes the sherman antitrust act the sherman silver purchase act which is not quite bimetallism but at least expands the monetary supply with a large purchase of silver The one thing Benjamin Harrison was sympathetic towards but couldn't get past was civil rights. 
He proposed a federal elections bill to protect black votes in the South, as well as a constitutional amendment to bolster the mostly overturned Civil Rights Act of 1875. But the Democratic victory with Grover Cleveland generally seemed to signal that Reconstruction was a dead letter. The constituencies in the North had faded. Uh, The South was firmly in the hands of the Bourbon Dems. So despite Harrison's sympathies and Republican majorities, it could not be resuscitated. Uh, Do you care to expand on this, Matt? So the Republicans had fixed their efforts in trying to secure black rights after the Civil War on the ballot and the courts. Black rights in the South would be protected by the franchise and your ability to seek redress in in court but uh it turns out that if that is not defended at some point uh by the government uh and by a citizenry that's able to uh depend on you know a a landed base for their their communities that can assert political power uh that that's actually going to end up being a dead letter and as uh, reconstruction ended uh these bourbon democrats these reactionary Democrats seized power uh, by exploiting white supremacy as the fundamental issue uh, to determine conditions. If everything was going to get worse, if the war, if uh, if the economy was going to keep collapsing uh, and leaving people destitute, then the question of who would suffer most was going to be determined by race, uh, and that meant that the uh, former slaves had to be kept into a condition uh, of absolute uh prostration before the law so that their labor could be fully exploited at every point uh and the only remedy that harrison who wanted to resuscitate uh black republicanism in the south if for no other reason than it could provide maybe get them some some votes and win them some power was to try to change the ballot in the south by pushing the federal election bill that would have taken control of elections away from the states and put them under the oversight of the federal government uh, which we've never done that has never happened that's why we have such a maddening checkerboard electoral system is because uh it was in the interests uh of southern power to to maintain their influence uh, after coming back into government following the civil war uh to avoid uh that sort of federal oversight because it's the local it's at the local 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 level that this white power was really being uh exercised and so it needed to be protected there uh and uh, this ballot this bill was defeated why the senate if you were gonna guess by the senate you were correct the world's most (laughs) deliberative body filibustered and allowed to die why because western republicans uh were looking to uh the south to get votes for the sherman silver purchase act uh and northern republicans needed some southerners to pass that tariff and so even though black suffrage may have been a sentimental and to some extent a practical goal of the republican party without influence in washington uh without power in washington black political interests would always be sacrificed on the altar of compromise within the constitutional system other interests would always outweigh it and meanwhile the courts the federal courts, of course, at the local level, the courts have been taken over by the Republican, the Democratic Party. But mm-hmm. at the federal level, the courts, which had been given these post-Reconstruction uh, amendments to defend black rights with, were busy using those amendments to 
articulate a concept of corporate personhood mm-hmm. that would determine America's legal relationship to private capital ever since. Uh, and this is part of that process whereby uh, these institutions of government take power unto themselves outside of democratic accountability in order to better manage this new unwieldy government structure. And one of the chief and first abstractions was to the courts where safe from popular uh, pressure, uh, a, a ideologically curdled concept of freedom uh, of all those words in those post reconstruction amendments uh, was codified into a law that not only uh, refused to extend uh, meaningful liberty to former slaves, but actually codified uh, segregation in the form of the Plessy Ferguson Ferguson decision. Uh, right. And when they did rule on the on actual civil rights legislation that was passed by Congress, it was to declare it unconstitutional and to mm-hmm. bar the federal government from protecting black rights. And this goes back to that thing that we were talking about in the first few episodes the eternal kind of <laughs> damnable logic of the constitution of equating freedom with property, you know, and, and yep. these using of these, these amendments that were supposed to protect the freedom of people with instead protecting the property of corporations. And, and even along that, I was yep. reading up on the Plessy case and they tried to use this to Plessy's advantage. He was a, a man, a mixed race man who uh, attempted to use a whites only car and was denied. And the argument in front of the Supreme Court, I'm no legal expert, but the best I can summarize it was basically that his half whiteness was a form of property that was being denied to him by this separation. So even in trying to find racial justice here, they're using this 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 freedom is not anything personal, but a, a property right in his defense. And of course, this does not even this novel legal argument is not able to uh, win the case in front of the Supreme Court. I just found that that attempt to use that reasoning in his defense interesting in this this thread that we're kind of unspooling of the the nature of American rights. But even to to hammer home the, that trade of of that you were talking about in the Senate of black rights for the tariff issues and the, the uh, silver purchase issues. Democratic Senator John Morgan of Alabama said of the issue that Northerners would quote, prefer to leave the Negro to work out his own salvation rather than lose money. Money, my dear friend is the real power in American politics at this day. I'm glad to have its shelter just now when it is the most efficient barrier to the new descent upon the South. Yep. And that is, in a nutshell, the bourbon ideology, which is that we have been defeated, uh, our old ways cannot sustain, so this new northern capitalism, will we fight it or will we accommodate it? And which one will uh, facilitate our, our thriving? And for the planter class who had launched the war in the first place, the answer was pretty clear. Uh, and so they, they were able to, because of the division uh, amongst the the poorer sections of the southern population, black and white, they were able to exercise uh, dominance uh, because the federal government never really stood up uh, black power uh, and freedom the way that it could have. Uh, before we move on, this is an audio medium, and I'm very excited to be entering this era because we can finally use primary source documents. I want to point out that Ben Harrison is the first president we have existent audio recordings of. So 
let's roll some audio from the first president we have recorded on tape. Play that beautiful Harrison tape. President of the United States, and American Congress in Washington, D.C. That with God's help, our two countries shall continue to live side by side in peace and prosperity. Benjamin Harrison. Peace and prosperity. I did not know about his crippling helium addiction. That's interesting. <laughs> I've been listening to a bunch of early presidential recordings and all these guys sounded like that. It, it's interesting how, you know, dialect and diction moves over time, yeah. but we'll be playing more. And also, I think it probably just sounds a lot higher. Yeah, yeah it it's probably a recording was. thing. Yeah. Yeah. But they all did have that nasal ass fucking accent. Yeah. We'll be we'll be using more presidential tape and hopefully uh, more that you can actually understand as time goes yeah. on. Anyway, the election of 1892. 1892 is a rematch. Baby Grover's back and now Harrison is defending the title. Cleveland, like most Democrats, was firmly against the sky high tariff and the dastardly emergence of silverism. In 1891, Cleveland had written an open letter against Silver, which propelled him back to the top of his party, and the Democrats nominated him on their first ballot. Exacerbating the collapse in constituency for the Republican economic agenda was the rise of populism in the West, and the Populist Party candidate John W. Weaver ended up winning the four Western states, as Matt said earlier. Finally, Benjamin Harrison's wife died of tuberculosis just a few weeks before the election, leading both candidates to suspend campaigning. The sources that I read referred to this as one of the most somber elections that anyone can remember. Everybody just kind of silently uh, in mourning to the president's departed wife uh, casting their ballot. No real hullabaloo. Cleveland was also able to mobilize energies against the seemingly pro-business actions of the billion-dollar Congress, uh, telling a Madison Square Garden audience, quote, scenes are enacted in the very abiding places of high protection that mock the hopes of toil and demonstrate the falsity that protection is a boon to toilers. In the end, Cleveland fairly sailed to a second term, winning his third straight popular vote total, though each one had been a lower total than the previous. And uh, just an interesting historical parallel I was thinking of. It's not unimaginable for Trump to pull what I would call the inverse Cleveland, <laughs> losing three straight elections popular votes by increasing numbers, but then serving two non-consecutive terms, which is a good uncut gem style parlay bet I would make. I want the non-consecutive terms with the popular vote losses with the increasing vote totals. This is my fucking way. This is how I win. I think I think you might get it. I think you might. Uh, that would be big money for me, but, uh, you know, a, a dark irony uh, of history repeating itself. I mean, you can't afford not to make that bet. Yeah. Considering the odds you get. So on to Cleveland 2, the Grovering. In a complete reversal of four years earlier, the Democrats now sweep back into office, taking the executive branch and both houses of Congress, a level of control the party had not held since 1856. Republicans were aghast at the reversal. John Hay referred to Cleveland as, quote, that fat and fatuous freak. <laughs> and so the Democrats set to work, showing the country the wisdom of their economic. Oh, no, wait, there is a massive economic panic in 1893. Oh, shit. Ah, oh, damn. He's kind of getting Fillmore here. Yeah. 
Uh, like most of the panics in the 19th century, this one sprang from desperate sources but followed a similar pattern. A crop failure in Buenos Aires caused a tightening of European credit. The financial collapse of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad that year signaled the collapse of yet another one of these speculative railroad bubbles of the 19th century. And with signs of trouble, there was a rush on banks and gold. In 1893, 360 banks closed. 119 railroads went into receivership. Total business failings mounted to more than 15,000. It's. It actually is. You said he, he Fillmore did. I think you meant Van Buren did. And he, yes. Oh, he yes, was yes. His, Van Buren. He did. was his own Jackson Van Buren because that central that middle Harrison f- term is a fluke. Like he won the popular vote that year. You know. Mm-hmm. So it is like two terms to to do your fucking uh, gim crackery, and then the fucking bill comes due in the third term. And he was unlucky enough to not be uh, uh, chilling out at the Hermitage because he had to come back, <laughs> and so. After having left office in good odor, even if he had lost, uh, he spends his second term just becoming everyone's least favorite guy, just failing completely to 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 match the moment, uh, and uh, as a result, putting his entire project into complete disrepute and the greater project of laissez-faire governance uh, into disrepute. I read one account that uh, that described him, uh, a contemporaneous account that described him as seeming like a harpooned whale, just limping along uh, to yeah. to death in his second term. Yeah, and it has to be remembered that Grover Cleveland is one of the dumb presidents. <laughs> you know, like they they do have various like you know mental faculties, various talents. Some of them are just sort of uh, blockheads, and, Cle- and Cleveland is one of those. Not like a Van Buren, who is like a maestro, just sort of a, a, a dutiful clock puncher who, 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 who kind of rose sort of a, without even his own effort. So when mm-hmm. this moment came, he was completely in, incapable of it. Uh, and even if he had been, of course, the system wouldn't have allowed him to because he was surrounded by people similarly afflicted, ideologically and intellectually. So all we get, all the country gets uh, in response to this crisis is the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, add a little bit of silver, put out a little bit of money, uh, but that takes 15 weeks, and it takes forever, uh, and it's obviously a watered-down version of what people want, and they try to lower tariffs. Oh, hey, let's lower the tariffs. At least make it cheaper to eat. But that also takes weeks, and it becomes... Matt, sorry, he repealed the, the Sherman Silver uh, Purchase Act. Oh, he repealed it. What? Yeah. Why would he do that? <laughs> That's because it was his ideology. Never That's mind. what he promised to do. Yeah, you're right. That's amazing. I just assumed he would have tried. So he tries to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, and he does it. Congratulations. Less money in the system. That'll help. And then he tries to lower the tariff. Hey, that's the other only way to, uh, that's the only thing we can do is try to make things cheaper. But it becomes this monstrosity, this corporate behemoth where special interests in the different states and regions are able to carve out exceptions for their pet industry, like the sugar industry, leaving it to be this frankenstein creature that nobody can get behind and uh leaves once again a government totally incapable of meeting the moment of crisis when it comes he he tries to lower the tariff it goes through all the machinations of congress it's just loaded up with uh, regional concessions to industries like sugar uh cleveland is outraged but signs it anyway saying our abandonment of the cause of of the principles upon which it rests means a party perfidy and party dishonor i just like any time in the 19th century anything is accused of being perfidious uh and a republican's retort quote for solemn stupidity for the wisdom of unwisdom he being grover cleveland takes the cake 
and this leads to widespread popular discontent, obviously, uh, which is in its most kind of comic opera form uh, expressed by Coxie's Army. Take it away, Coxie. Which was a uh, march from Ohio to Washington uh, demanding funds from the government to create jobs for unemployed people. It was led by a Ohio businessman and former greenbacker named Jacob Coxie, who uh, started marching uh, across Ohio, uh, bringing people along with him, uh, and making it to Washington, D.C., uh, where they were uh, the hundred so people who had made it that far were arrested for walking on the Capitol grounds. <laughs> and so Cleveland finds himself presiding over not just economic collapse, but the attendant massive social ferment. We see that in Coxie's army, but it was most dramatically played out in the Pullman strike. As railroads responded to recession by cutting wages, workers for the Pullman Palace Car Company also suffered from the high rents in the Pullman Company town in Chicago. Organized by Eugene Debs and the American Railway Union starting in June 1894, as many as 125,000 railway workers across the West walked off their job rather than move Pullman cars. Cleveland and his attorney general, Richard Olney, who, it should be noted, was still on retainer with the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad at the time he was serving. He was making more from his railroad retainer than he was from his attorney general salary. <laughs> but this is not corruption. This is no, not, no, no. This is not like getting some Paddy's cousin a job sweeping the streets. No, no, no. This is all just good business. Uh, so they obtained a federal injunction against the strikers on the grounds that the railroads hauled U.S. mail and several of the railroads affected were under federal receivership. Cleveland, following Arthur's precedent, deployed federal troops to break the strike. And through confrontations across the country, as many as 70 people would die before the strikes were ended. So this is the most violent and deadliest labor movement uh, in the Western world. And the pattern of it throughout the period is an attempt to create these institutions to organize workers that are put to the test of defending themselves by the state and fail because they aren't durable enough yet. The lights of the nights of labor throughout this period find themselves organizing workers, specifically in the, the railroad industries, getting them into a connected uh, relationship with one another. Then local crises lead local workers to push for a confrontation with management that the organization itself isn't ready for. Mm -hmm. And that means that when the final contest comes, uh, they're unable to uh, win, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that with the railroad strike of uh, 1877, and you see it with Pullman. Uh, but what you're seeing as this is happening is you're seeing a greater and greater disillusionment from uh, the, the idea of labor capital cooperation, which undergirded the free labor ideology that a lot of these guys were still operating under. Like mm -hmm. Eugene Debs during this period, even though he is a, uh, a organizer for the rail union and is in direct c confrontation with the state at this point is still pro capitalist. He still thinks that there is not an inherent conflict between labor and capital. And it was the experience of the Pullman strike and the federal intervention on very flimsy pretext on behalf of capital that uh, disillusioned him and many other 
workers both then and in the fights to come yeah and you see that theory of of labor capital cooperation like a lot of the campaign literature around pro-tariff politicians at this time the idea that the tariff will protect industry and then industry will uplift the workers through its prosperity and then that would in turn offset the rising cost of goods like that is that is the idea uh, of labor uh, capital cooperation in in that form of the ideology and but that ideology over the years had to keep coming in contact with the, the reality that in every situation, the reaction of the boss is to cut wages and to cut mm-hmm. and to increase exploitation and to immiserate, which means that there, people, there is some sort of conflict because none of this mutual satisfaction is happening. The boss stays rich, even in hard times, uh, and the misery is taken out on uh, the workers, many of these railroads that sparked these conflicts by cutting wages were still issuing dividends to their stockholders during this period. They were, in fact, paying for the dividends with these late wage savings they would make by cutting wages. And in mm-hmm. that context, uh, the necessity of conflict and the necessity to create a political power around class starts to cut, take effect among a lot of these workers. And you see uh the beginning demands for some sort of political party that could be organized around labor now this same process is happening in europe at basically the same time but in europe because of the constraints of geography uh and the constraints of resources political sovereignty had just been extended be- to the to the lower classes at all the ability to vote was finally being generalized, which mm-hmm. means parties were being built for the first time, and they were be- being built along articulated ideological or articulated class positions. But in the United States, because of we can drop it right now, free real estate. It's free real estate. Hell yeah! Our formal democracy was expanded much earlier, and we had mass democracy by the 1840s. And a Democratic Party that stood for that democracy, but it, it was a it was a it was a notion of democracy that had no class content to it. That was, if it did have one, it was the yeoman fantasy of of uh, self sufficiency, which necessitates minimal government. And that ideology is is at this point reaching its terminal crisis within the American political class. And Cleveland really is sort of the last. Uh, figure to uh, to articulate it. And so we see the popular consensus around the Clevelandite bourbon Democrats collapse. They get rinsed in the 1894 midterms with Republicans taking back the House in a massive landslide. And within the Democratic Party, Cleveland's faction lost grip on most leadership positions. By 1896, though Cleveland did not express any interest in a third term, it was clear his opponents would win control of the Democratic Party. And so we turn to the election of 1896. As you alluded to, this is a realignment, the end of the third party system in American politics and the beginning of the fourth. Matt, please explain. So the Tammany Hall crooks versus the handsome generals, the contest that defined the Gilded Age is finally ending because uh, the outside the pressures within that consensus are too great. And they're coming. The pressure is coming, as I said, from the West in the form of this populist party that now 
has held political power in in the states and at the federal level as challenged for the presidency is going to challenge again for the presidency uh is hugely popular in the west and is making inroads in the south but by going into conflict with the bourbon democracy there by trying to articulate a cross-racial smallholder uh uh politics in north carolina the uh the populist candidates who were able to take control of the state legislature did there did so with the with the support of black voters uh and there were attempts throughout the south to create a populist party of poor whites that's that reached out to the uh republican the, the remaining republican political organizations around uh former slaves uh and that put them in violent opposition to the, the the democratic party which used every means it had fair and foul mostly foul to prevent them from uh politically organizing there uh but the pressure exists and the democratic party the putative party of the people feels this pressure much more intensely and so by the time it comes to nominate a uh president nominate a candidate in in 96 uh with the cleveland ideology dead and with its exponents discredited within the party uh the energy comes from outside in the form of this new populist spirit which is articulated most generally in the notion of bimetallism because there's a lot of stuff that the uh, populists want that is too far for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in either of the the two major parties. But one thing that uh, a lot of Democrats who might not be too kind on the idea of getting rid of the Senate or uh, a graduated (laughs) income tax uh, or, or monopolizing the, or or, uh, breaking up the monopolies of the railroads and certainly public uh, ownership, they could get behind the idea of expanding the money supply. Mm-hmm. which is bimetallism the notion of re- getting rid of just the standard of gold convertibility for for currency but adding silver a ton of which was being mined out west so you have a alliance within the democratic party of these people inflected with a populist desire to help the little guy by giving him more currency an ability to get out from under debt for the main thing uh and that was very uh, that was a very persuasive pitch to people. Uh, and it was shorn of like it's more radical uh, trappings. Like the real demand, the real populist demand had been for a fiat currency. Right. Uh, but for many, that was, again, too far. They were too prop- uh, too ideologically committed to the notion of uh, a uh, a independent determiner of, of worth in the form of, of, of precious metal. But you had a... a people who had it who believed this was the way to help working people but also people who were connected to silver interests large mine owners who had a vested literal interest in seeing silver bought by the u.s government to raise its price and so bimetallism becomes the defining issue of this presidential election and that's because it is the only articulation that can make it to the level of these two parties of a strangled populist demand for 
a democratic control of uh, of the economy. Uh, this is the faint echo that can be heard uh, within the two parties, and it becomes the dividing line uh, in politics during the period. And it's because the dream of like real co- a cooperative economy that is in cohate beneath all of this is just it can't be articulated. It, it, does, it cannot be expressed through the, the polity. But uh, a polity that has accepted the, the illusion of, of precious metal as determiner of real value, uh, at that level, silver can enter into the equation of acceptable ideas, acceptable uh, alternatives to the to status quo. But it's as far as it can be pushed at that level is, right. is, the, is the dang silver. So silver becomes the sine qua non of populism and populism within the Democratic Party. And then gold becomes sine qua non with respectfulness, honesty, integrity, all of the concepts arrayed around uh, uh, middle, northern middle class propriety. And this is, of course, the point in which we get one of the most famous speeches in American history, which we cannot move on without bringing up because... William Jennings Bryan, the avatar of Western populism, gets the uh, Democratic nomination in 1896, and it is at the nominating convention. The thing that gets gets him the nomination, well, arguably, it's it, there are people who say he probably would have gotten the nomination regardless of the speech, but he delivers this barn burner speech advocating for the working man and silverism that ends on the now famous line, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And then he stood back and he put his arms out. Yes, like Jesus. He put his yeah. arms to his temple for the the uh, the crown of thorns and then put the pushed them out uh, like Jesus. And I, I just think that, you know, that is such a famous line. It is such a, a, a turn of phrase. It is funny that it is just in the end over this like you know kind of kind of uh, uh technical monetary issue but it, it it reveals the emotional level in which this connects to people that he is literally messaging that the monetary policy is to the working people of the country a crucifixion on the level of that which killed the lord jesus christ <laughs> yep. yeah and so brian becomes the democratic nominee as this as this acknowledgement of the power of populism, leaving the populists with the question, well, what, what do we do? Who do we nominate for president? Because now <laughs> one of our main, our main demands is being articulated by the Democratic nominee. Uh, and the party was split between those who saw the writing on the wall, who, under, who saw the constitutional system as such, incapable of, uh, of working on anything other than a two-party system, uh, of the third parties only being able to operate as pressure groups, mm-hmm. which uh, when you look at the constitutional order, first past the post uh, elections to districts, the way that we have determined it, it really does demand uh, two parties over time. How they are divided is, is, is a separate question, but there, there will be two parties in the system. Uh, so many people in the populist party uh, said that they needed to nominate Brian as well. 
mm-hmm. uh, which would, though, have undermined their position as a viable third party. And many of the people who opposed that move were those in the South who had just spent the last half a decade fighting poisonous political battles with the Democratic Party there. Uh, where it was controlled by people who had nothing but contempt for all of the populist messages, had no desire to see any uh, help extended to regular people. Uh, And they knew that, and they had seen it up close, and they didn't want to ally with that party for good reason. Uh, But they were the minority, and uh, Brian ended up being nominated by both the Democratic and the populist parties. Uh, just goes to show you what happens when you try to back a candidate seeking to overturn an antagonistic party. William McKinley bucks the Republican trend of being a handsome general from Ohio by being a kind of homely major from Ohio. Otherwise, it's the same old story. Born in Ohio on January 29th, 1843, Methodist primary education, working as a postal clerk and school teacher when the war broke out. Of these handsome general guys, McKinley is the only one who actually enlisted rather than being granted a commission, and he served for a while under Rutherford B. Hayes, fighting his way up to the rank of major. Then goes back to Ohio, becomes a lawyer, makes a name for himself defending some striking coal miners, so good on you, McKinley, which impresses Cleveland businessman Mark Hanna, who becomes his longtime advocate. McKinley gets elected to Congress in 1876. He becomes known as the Tariff Guy, which is how he gets his name on the McKinley Tariff of 1890. He gets gerrymandered out of his district, but then runs for and wins the governor of Ohio twice. With Hannah as his point man, McKinley locked up the Republican nomination in 1896, and he was set off against William Jennings Bryan. Uh, This 1896 campaign is a big inflection point in American history. It is uh, considered one of the births of American campaigning. It is the transformation of the party system, as we alluded to before. Uh, This is a big one. And uh, it is a lot of it is subsumed into the personality of not really uh, McKinley, but more of uh, Mark Hanna and how he wires this election. So do you want to want to talk about Mark Hanna and the front porch campaign, Matt? So Mark Hanna, was a uh, businessman, political fixer in Ohio who who uh, saw the need to uh, get everybody on the same page when it came to uh, the people on one end of the uh, the barrel when it came to uh, the currency, otherwise known as capital. Uh, and he was aided by that, uh, aided in that significantly by the fact that the Democratic Party, which had been reliable up until that point, uh, was in the process of being subsumed by this populist wave, making the Republican Party the only bulwark of capital uh, if it wanted to uh, maintain uh, its preferred relationship to the money supply. And so Mark Hanna, in the words of poet Vachel Lindsay, uh, went rallying the roller tops and rallying the bucket <laughs> shops. Uh, he went door to door, essentially, throughout the, the, the financial uh, interests of the East uh, with hat in hand saying... Uh, we are the thing standing between you and the barbarians uh, and getting massive amounts of money, unprecedented amounts of money uh, that he spread throughout the country in the form of rallies and speeches by surrogates and pamphlets, parades, friendly media. All the while, William McKinley himself doesn't leave the front porch of his home in Ohio, gives waves to the people from the balustrade and is 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 
dignified and re- and removed while the mud is slung in the streets while the not the, the while the actual press not even being directly paid by the campaign to say this stuff just saying it because they believed it goes on a campaign to equate bimetallism with uh, absolute anarchy the idea <laughs> that it is a fraud perpetrated by a demagogue that will destroy the american economy <laughs> uh and in the in the teeth of this all brian really has is himself and his amazing energy because he was a uh, he was the boy congressman from omaha he was he was incredibly charismatic on the stump he was his own person was the only thing he could really uh compete with that in the support of uh illinois G- governor john eltgeld who uh partnered the haymarket martyrs and was sort of the party official who was closest to brian within the machine um he went across the country covering eighteen thousand miles of the midwest the upper south and the northeast in three months there is attempt there are attempts to make connections to those uh urban workers uh but in the end the the hegemonic cultural denial of bimetallism uh, coupled with the insane amount of money, uh, invo- uh, Hannah paid f- 500,000 voters to travel to Canton, Ohio at one point, just fucking <laughs> paid them off to do it. I, be- I believe I saw a quote that was something like, uh, it was cheaper to travel to Canton than to not to, <laughs> uh, because of, uh, Hannah's, Hannah's fundraising yeah. and also just like interesting new campaign tactics. I think we might do a bonus about just the history of campaigning, but, uh, this, this, the way that hannah would arrange for basically various specific groups to come to canton and they were all like single issue groups and then a focus group would write a speech for uh mckinley to read directly to them that that was you know directed specifically at their group and their interests uh you know whereas brian is traveling around doing all these speeches and things it's kind of the two sides of what is now the same thing in in modern campaigning it's both the right. soliciting the ultra wealthy to you know through ever what their packs or whatever to to fund your coffers with the hyper specific focus group speeches it's it's very interesting they're they're inventing the modern campaign during this yeah and then it would be technology over time that would fuse the two into one yes uh so it's a hell of a barn burner uh but in the end mckinley beats brian pretty handily he carries the whole northeast and the midwest uh and the main problem for brian is that bimetallism even though as i said it was this sine qua non for people it, it meant liberty it was it had come out of the politics of the west it had come out of the conflict over uh over railroad fees and 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 the crop lien system and debt in the in the context of farming uh and it was in the east seen as a sop to farmers Mm -hmm. it was not seen as part of a broader populist struggle against concentrated capital it was seen as an interest play by people with a different uh relationship to uh the economy people who worked their own land and sold the produce which was not a relatable uh form for most people in the north and the connection made uh was not made largely uh between uh silver and any kind of prosperity for uh the laborer because they had more pressing concerns 
uh, that were not as much addressed by uh, the the by by the by metal uh, platform. And so McKinley gets to get him into office. And hilariously, as soon as McKinley becomes president, almost the entire issue of currency falls away because of the discovery of a massive amount of uh, gold in the Yukon, Mm -hmm. which increases the money, the money supply without the, the, uh, the creation of bimetallism. So McKinley wins and he enters office. And the thing about McKinley's first term is the Spanish American war. This is kind of the inflection point where American empire crosses its geographic boundary from colonization of the continent to domination of the world. It's important, but as Matt was just referencing, let's clean up the panic of 1893 first. Uh, The Republican Congress quickly passes the Dingley Act, fulfilling McKinley's promise to raise tariffs. McKinley briefly gauged international interest in bimetallism. Uh, he went to the the British to see, and the French to see, like, hey, would you be interested in picking up the silver standard thing? But I thought it was f- very funny that the British considered it and basically went to the uh, Raj in India and were like, hey, can we do silver here? And the Raj was like, no, absolutely. There will not be uh, silver in India. And so the British nicks it and McKinley nixes it. It's just like one of those I- illustrations of an increasingly international world that like Indian British colonial in, uh, Indian monetary policy would would be one of the final nails in the coffin of uh silver in america it is no it's important to note that that while it was in the the capital interest in america to maintain uh gold as a standard they were in also constrained by the fact that the british were insisting on gold and Mm -hmm. they were in charge essentially of the uh global trade nexus that the united states had to be uh integrated into and so that relationship with england i mean it wasn't like they had to twist our arm considering yeah. who was in charge but it was a element a, a real uh, uh influence on our uh, monetary policy as matt alluded to uh gold strikes in the yukon and also in australia ease the gold supply and by 1900 mckinley was able to sign the gold standard act moving the u.s to a purely gold-based currency and that was the end of of bimetallism oh boy we had a good time huh we got uh, at least we got the wizard of oz out of it right yes exactly 16 to 1 more like 16 to none goodbye bimetallism <laughs> bye-bye uh, gold baby gold <laughs> it's all gold solid gold i love gold so now the spanish-american war cubans had been attempting to throw off the yoke of the increasingly decrepit spanish empire for a generation for at least a generation By the 1890s, the conflict had broken out into a full-on war of independence, and American public opinion increasingly favored the rebels. Matt, this is kind of a a tall order uh, because, you know, this is a a full war, but would you like to break down the conflict of America's eventual intervention in the Spanish-American War for us? It boils down to the closure of the frontier, the, the ending of the American expansionary project, and the need to articulate a new project for america a new uh expansionary uh, model and in this case it meant new markets well that was the terminology that was often used new markets for american goods which would allow the american economy to expand and and in- increase its increase its industry because it would no longer be constrained by the demand within the united states it could extend its uh trade networks outward uh and that meant by grabbing for the same spoils 
that the European powers were grabbing for. And so the, as uh, Spanish rule in the Caribbean and in the Philippines begins to uh, weaken under uh, resistance from uh, the, the occupants of those colonies, you have this dynamic between public opinion uh, generated by moving stories from the yellow press about heroic uh, rebels in Cuba uh, going together with the the momentum of this new this new continental behemoth in the form of the United States, which was uh, able to exert a power that nothing in uh, the surrounding area could compete with, uh, asserting itself beyond its borders. Uh, and McKinley, just an old fuddy-duddy from Ohio, has no interest in the war. He believes the Washington shit about don't get into foreign entanglements. Hey, mm-hmm. remember the whole thing is we are not an empire. We mm-hmm. don't go. Uh, we don't go uh, to other places seeking monsters to destroy, as John Quincy Adams said. Uh, but expansion is built in at as fundamental a level as all of those uh, those ideas which means that it is uh, determinative. And so uh, thanks to elite pressure in the form of the uh, emerging corporate power of America uh, and the popular demands uh, of people whipped into a frenzy uh, 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 by the romance of, of a rebellion, the explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor cause unknown to this day uh, leads McKinley against his own judgment to uh, to declare war on Spain and say, oh, uh, if in the course of liberating any of these countries, we get to hang around, uh, maybe be in charge a little bit, uh, don't mind if I do. <laughs> I have a, a good quote on from McKinley here, because uh, one of the first acts of the war was a uh, kind of decisive naval battle in the Philippines, and, and America quickly took over dominating that reason. Uh, that region and this was McKinley kind of reasoning out this is this is McKinley as uh, you know like Bilbo Baggins in the Fellowship of the Ring uh, <laughs> kind of being like why shouldn't I why shouldn't I wear it here one more time McKinley when I next realized that the Philippines had dropped into our laps I confess I did not know what to do with them and one late night it came to me this way one that we could not give them back to Spain that would be cowardly and dishonorable two that we could not turn them over to France or Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. Three, that we not leave them to themselves. They are unfit for self-government, and they would soon have anarchy and misrule over their worse than Spain's wars. And four, that there was nothing left for us to do but take them all, and to educate the Filipinos, and uplift them, and civilize and Christianize them, and by God's grace do the best we could by them, and our fellow men for whom Christ also died. How should I keep it? I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. What? Th- th- way to go. Uh, thank, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Billy. That's really uh, thoughtful of you. Yes. And, and this is, you see here, a, a, a mental razor moving, gliding effortlessly to see, destroying all of the things that thought it believed in by syllogism because of forces that he believes to be in control of. I'll also say of McKinley's foreign uh, policy that uh, the Boxer Rebellion happens during his term. Uh, and as part of that, uh, a group of missionaries get hold up of American missionary missionaries get hold up in 
Beijing, and McKinley decided to unilaterally send 5,000 men to relieve the missionaries in Beijing during the Boxer Rebellion, uh, which I only bring up because I think that that is uh, kind of a some, one thing to bookmark in the kind of accruing of these unilateral executive actions to uh, deploy troops around the world. That'll become more important as we develop the security state in the, in the 20th century. Watch this space. Yes. The election of 1900 is largely a replay of 1896. McKinley easily gets the Republican nod, although this time he's foisted with a new running mate, uh, as his previous vice president had died. His new running mate is one Theodore Roosevelt. And the funny thing about Roosevelt as Veep is he basically got the gig just because of how much he was disliked by Thomas Platt, the boss of New York's Republican Party. Platt was not a fan of Roosevelt's good government reform efforts and pressured McKinley to take him on as Veep as a way to marginalize him in politics. Let's see how this plays out. Otherwise, William Jennings Bryan runs again for the Democrats, and the result is largely the same, though this time McKinley picks up a host of Western and Mountain states that Bryan won in 96. Tough luck, Bryan. The full dinner pail. That's what won <laughs> McKinley his re-election, is that, yes, because they found some gold and, and the, the real business cycle kicked in or whatever, McKinley was able to preside over relative prosperity as, as the, as the, recession, as the uh, depression eased, and he campaigned on the slogan of uh, the full dinner pail, which <laughs> tells you that apparently guys carried around their dinner in pails back then, which doesn't I mean, sound very appealing. A box has a lid. <laughs> a pail is just open. Well, Why they called them dinner and they called them lunch pails, you know, that, you know, lunch pail oh, right. uh, player, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one of those like boxes with the dome lids that kind oh, of, oh, you're right. I don't know. Yeah, but why would you that, take your a lunch pail makes sense because you got to take your lunch to your job. Where are you taking your dinner? You're having See, that's the thing. Why are you putting your dinner in a pail in the first place? Uh, I don't know. Anyway. One of those 19th century things like uh, marrying a girl that you raised from age of 11. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I love grooming uh, my friend's daughter, my dead friend's daughter while eating from my uh, my full dinner pail. <laughs> uh. Leon Frank Cholgosh was born to a Polish family in Michigan in 1873. In his adolescence, he worked at a glass factory and then at a steel mill. After the panic of 1893, with wage reductions, his fellow workers went on strike. Cholgash was at odds with the institutions of his Catholic upbringing and drifted towards increasingly radical associations. First a working men's association, then a socialist group, and eventually towards anarchism. Matt, what's going on with anarchism in 1900? Well... During this period that the working class is articulating itself into unions and political parties or groups within political parties, as it was here, uh, there are more radical elements, as there always are, who see these accommodations as insufficient at the moment uh, and uh, that and the need for more radical action. Uh, and the anarchists who, who don't want to see uh, the state uh, uh, assimilate working class concerns until they have bled uh working class politics of of meaningful uh, uh revolutionary energy rather see the state confronted violently in provoking a conflict that could then be won by the uh spontaneously organized power of the working class themselves and the way that a lot of these anarchists decided to go about it was to 
perpetrate spectacular acts of political violence. They called propaganda of the deed uh, involving the assassination uh, of political leaders, uh, royal family members, uh, bombings, those sort of things. Uh, the, the prime minister of France during this period was assassinated by an anarchist. The king of Italy, the empress of Austria were all killed. Numerous prime ministers of Spain. Uh, and in the United States, this movement uh, was also growing. Uh, anarchists had been involved in the Haymarket uh, affair of 1881 in Chicago. Uh, Emma Goldman was a prominent anarchist uh, during this period. There were anarchist newspapers and, and there were groups around her who were organizing and, and trying to push to, trying to push for a uh, confrontation, a final confrontation between labor and capital. Uh, and Cholgash fell into the stream of anarchism uh, and saw Emma Goldman speak uh, at a rally and was very impressed. Uh, and he attempted then to insinuate himself into uh, the anarchist scene in Cleveland where she was, uh, but uh, he gave off bad vibes. <laughs> yes. Uh, very much as uh, as how Charles Gatieu, the assassin of Garfield, was asked to leave a free love colony because he was weirding people out. Leon <laughs> Cholgosh was frozen out of the anarchists for being too intense. They actually uh, re- released like a note in one of their papers being like, uh, if you see this guy, he's uh, probably a spy. Yeah. He was, he was awkward enough that they thought that he was an infiltrator. Yes. And so inspired by the assassination of the king of Italy, Uh, And desiring to prove once and for all to Emma Goldman that he really was a true blue anarchist, uh, he traveled to the Pan-American Exposition of Buffalo uh, in August 1901. Uh, He got into the reception line at the Temple of Music. Uh, He was able to secrete a gun on his person to meet the president through the dastardly uh spycraft of putting a handkerchief over it <laughs> that is the, that he what he just had a gun in his hand and just put a fucking hanky on top of it and no one noticed until he got up to the front of the reception line and put two in mckinley's abdomen he uh mckinley died of an infection eight days later meaning he probably would have lived through it if it had happened now uh cholgosh though was uh, tried of course executed uh 45 days after the killing uh and the end of mckinley is the end of that third party system because uh into the presidency comes a figure who is going to embody uh a new articulation of a uh of a fully emboldened and imperially minded american project in the form of theodore roosevelt it is very wild that they had had two presidents just walked up to and shot in the last 35 (laughs) years it's like it happened once and like we're not going to do anything about that and then it happened again and they're like "Mm," you know yeah the third time is really a charge for a charm for this (laughs) under a handkerchief Uh, just Uh, under a handkerchief wild i used to think that it was like this special little palm gun yeah like a derringer on a wrist like like one of those like a travis bickle thing nope it was just a pistol you just put a fucking handkerchief over it i think cholgash is a fair embodiment of the social ferment accompanying the gilded age breaking like a fever uh this intensely neurotic disaffected and disempowered man taking the plight of the working people on himself in the form of two slugs to the president's gut cholgash's last words were I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the good working people. I'm not sorry for my crime. I'm sorry I could not see my father. Emma, Emma, I love you. 
Emma. It's all for you, Emma. It's all for you. And I emphasize Shogash's neuroses uh, because one thing we sort of mentioned earlier but should be underlined here because it's important for this era is just how sick Gilded Age Americans were. By almost every available metric, Americans were getting weaker, shorter lifespans, higher infant mortality, lower physical height. The height of Americans were, was decreasing over the entire second half of the 19th century. We were literally getting smaller and not just sick of body, but sick of mind. The psychological understanding at this time was still in its infancy. This era saw the rise of a host of recognizable mental afflictions, an epidemic of hysteria and agoraphobia, listlessness among the middle class, especially women traits. We could broadly see as anxiety and depression today. Something about society was traumatizing and literally enfeebling Americans. Neuroses, the emergence of a middle class imbued with a new sense of self-consciousness, a knowledge of the vast disparities between the haves and have-nots, and the firm belief that we've got to do something. And suddenly, amidst this desire for progress and virility, launched into the Oval Office was a kind of bro-progressive, a progressive, as it were, or, in the parlance of the times, a bull moose. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds. Additional music this week by Jesse Robertson, whose music you can find at xhappydaggerx.bandcamp.com as well as Justin K. Comer and Alec Musial. Our show art is by Branson Reese. Join us next week for The Jock, The Judge, and The Poindexter.